0: We are so blessed tonight to have General Carl Fisher. I met Carl, gosh, nearly 20 years ago. I had gone out to Maxwell Federal Prison to speak at the chapel. and I did not only met Carl, but I met the first lady of Maxwell Federal Prison, uh, Lisa. She was right there on the front row. And I was just taken with this couple. So over his tenure there, about 14 years, our friendship grew. And Carl and Lisa were so gracious to become part of our church family. They live over in Witamka, but he's a general officer. We don't have that many generals in our church, actually, Carl. I think you may be uh, one of the only ones. But he has been a chaplain par excellence. Carl is used by the North American Mission Board to go all over the world and train our chaplains. And we are so blessed to have him on the team. He's been working with our prison ministry and just recently handed the baton off to Chuck Latham. But you've done a phenomenal job getting everything organized. But Carl and Lisa are blessed with two daughters, Chloe and Hannah, and we're blessed to have you tonight. Would you help me welcome General Carl Fisher? Thank you, Pastor
1: Jay. Thank you, Pastor Jay. Uh, With that uh, pump-up speech, I've got nowhere to go but down tonight, so... uh, But uh, one of the things we appreciate so much, I think, about our pastor uh, is the fact that he he builds us all up like that and uh, believes in us sometimes, and we don't even believe in ourselves, and reminds us that God constantly uh, believes in us. So glad to be with you here tonight, and uh, I don't trust being behind this uh, pulpit for granted. It is an honor to speak behind Pastor Jay's pulpit and to speak uh, with First Baptist tonight. Let us pray. Let us pray the ancient prayer, or Lord, have mercy. And let us say the ancient prayer of the church that we as evangelicals have championed, Lord Jesus Christ, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, tonight, show us a picture of your mercy that we might offer it more freely and forever be the recipients of your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Tonight we've got a simple outline. We're going to hear our scripture for tonight. After that, uh, I will tell, retell uh, two biblical stories, and then after that, give a little practical application. But a little reminder on where we've been, where we're going with the Beatitudes Uh, begins in Matthew 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and, and, and sat down, the scripture says. And his disciples came to them, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for help me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Last week, it was blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for what? They will be filled. Tonight is blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. And that's followed on by the next, just to give you a sneak preview, what's coming up next is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I think the reason Jay and Pastor and asked me to preach tonight is because of my long time connection in prison ministry. And generally speaking, people associate people involved in prison ministry with mercy. And for the most part, I think that's true. But I want to remind you that if you're involved in prison ministry, there is another gift you need—spiritual gift—and that's discernment. Notice where "Blessed are the merciful" is located in the Beatitudes. It's right between two other blesseds. It's located between "Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness," and then "Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God." Because you see, in order to offer mercy, we must first know what righteousness is, what it looks like. Because you can't offer mercy from a point of being wrong. You offer mercy from being right. And once mercy is offered, it opens up the next step to a purity of heart where you actually get to see the face of God. And tonight we'll hear the story about a person who receives mercy, a very unlikely person who gives mercy. Suffice it to say that generally speaking, when we talk about uh, forgiveness, mercy, grace, and penitence, we won't go into all the different meanings of these n- words, but suffice it to say forgiveness is usually, we think of forgiveness, that's for us. If you've ever carried a grudge, it's a burden, isn't it? So forgiveness is something for us because it, it lets us walk a little lighter. But mercy is something we do for the other person. But we're going to see tonight that even mercy can be somewhat conditional. But grace now, on the other hand, what Jesus did for us on the cross, grace is unconditional. Now while I'm preaching about mercy tonight, I realize there may be some people here and you have been victimized in a horrible or traumatic way. There's no such thing as cheap mercy. Because the Bible also has a lot to say, doesn't it, about accountability, about responsibility, about penitence and confession. And I realize in a group this size, we may have somebody here or many people here tonight, and you've been hurt so much that even if your offender confessed, repented, atoned, and did all of those things, it wouldn't undo all the hurt that you've experienced. And so I want to caveat that in this message on mercy to saying that if you've been victimized in that kind of way and you're living in that kind of hurt, I want to encourage you to to seek out another brother or sister here tonight or one of our pastors to walk with you alongside that journey where you can find the healing that you so desperately need and deserve. And to everyone here who works in our criminal justice system, public defenders, prosecutors, judges, policemen, probation officers, halfway house workers, legislators, uh, probation folks, pardon and paroles, all of our correctional officers who put their their lives on the line every day. And I probably missed out some folks in our system, but thank you for everything you do. And I also applaud all those on our prison ministry team. I think I saw Mac and Karen here, maybe some other folks here, but I applaud you for all the work you do in prison ministry. Well in my ministry over the years in a correctional setting uh, I have encountered I would say three groups of people and I mean this very subjective like okay but I have met one group of people who are incarcerated and quite frankly I wonder why we let them out of prison. Their sentences are not long enough. I would not want them living next to your family or my family and I consider them dangerous. I really do. I've met them. Now I still might offer mercy. You know, I would hope that we might pay them what they should be deserved while they're working in prison, or we might offer the programs that they might need, but I would not let them out of prison. I've met another group of people in prison. Now, for those of you who are prosecutors, they won't tell you this, but they will tell the chaplain offline, hey, you know, I got what I deserved. And their sentences are fair. Now, I say this away from the pulpit because I want you to know right now I'm not saying, thus saith the Lord. I am giving my opinion, and then I'll come back to thus saith the Lord. But I will tell you I have encountered another group of people that in my humble opinion do not belong in prison, should have never been in prison, and they need mercy. They need mercy. They are not a threat to society, maybe never were, In prison is destroying their families, crushing their future, and ironically, we never think about this, but it takes away their ability to actually pay back their victims. So we are in a nation where we pride ourselves on liberty, but we incarcerate more people than any other nation in the world. So I do return to my prophetic voice, thus saith the Lord, I do think something is wrong with this picture. Yes. So, so did you know that God's law to the Jewish people, the Torah, does not even mention incarceration as a means of punishing people? Oh, sure. Now you'll find stories of people in jail, like what the Egyptians did to Joseph, or what the Paul did what the Romans did to Paul, the Babylonians. You'll, you'll see other cultures incarcerating people, but you won't see that the Torah prescribes it anywhere. Yes. Some of you are saying, well, do you really want to turn back to the Old Testament ways? Uh, Yes, we know the Torah lists a few punishments that we would find abhorrent today, like stoning people for blasphemy or cursing their parents. But don't judge the Torah based on our modern culture. When you compare the Torah to other surrounding cultures in that day, you will find it to be quite merciful. And in many ways, the Torah is more merciful than our criminal justice system today. Modern-day cultures did not invent cities of refuge. They come from the Torah. The Torah also paves the way for offenders to pay back their victims and offers rituals to atone, repent, and find healing. Even the laws about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth are not so much about punishing as they are keeping the, the victim from coming back disproportionately. In other words, if somebody in those days gouged out your left eye, you're entitled to gouge out their left eye, but not both eyes. The Torah is not so much about punishment as it is restorative justice. And while we as Americans judge corporal punishment as cruel and unusual, I ask you, if you had to pay for a crime and you could choose between 10 lashes across your back or 10 years in prison, which would you choose? I'm not suggesting at all that we return to those kinds of punishments, simply saying that for some reason in our American society we accept prison as a normal way to punish people even for minor offenses and nonviolent crimes. And I'm suggesting that some of those sentences are cruel and unusual, and we as Christians need to look at things in our culture that we could do and maybe rethink some of these things, at least. For this third group of people that I was talking about but tonight we're not going to solve all those problems are we so let's instead look at what we can personally do in our own lives to obtain and give this mercy Matthew 18 21 to 35 tells us the story of how Peter came to Jesus and asked that question do you remember when Peter came to, to Jesus and asked the question Lord how many times should I forgive do you remember that And Peter is so brash and so proud of himself and his theology and his spirituality, he doesn't even give Jesus a time to answer the question. He answers it for him. And so he says, seven times? He just didn't pull that out of the air. It was tradition in rabbinical school that you would forgive somebody three times. Well, Peter was forgiving them two times, three times. Plus another one, the number seven, uh, 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 you know, a number of completeness. So he was proud of his answer. And then do you remember what Jesus does? We can almost imagine Jesus rolling his eyes, shaking his head. No, Peter. (laughs) Not seven times, but seven times 70 or 77. It actually depends on the translation you're looking at. You know, the Greek is really not clear on that. It's either 77 or 490, but I'm glad we don't know because if we did, I guarantee you there would be some poor legalistic Christian who'd be counting. 488. 489, you know, 490, and now I've got you. But, you know, and I think sometimes we confuse forgiveness also with forgetfulness. And people like to cite Isaiah's verse about God not remembering Israel's sins. But Isaiah was using hyperbole to show how awesome the power of God's forgiveness is. You see, an all-knowing God does not have memory loss. When Jesus died on the cross and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Oh, he knew what they were doing all right. But he chose to forgive them anyway. Listen, God gave you a brain. And the brain is hardwired to remember painful memories. Forgiveness is not forgetting and all of a sudden having warm fuzzies about somebody. Because you ever notice sometimes you'll forgive somebody of something? Well, what happens? It keeps resurfacing in your mind. And sometimes this forgiving 490 times is about forgiving the same thing over and over and over again. But Jesus was not teaching a limited number of times to forgive. He was teaching mercy. I used to think he was teaching unconditional forgiveness. But as we hear Jesus' follow-on parable, there are conditions even to Mercy. Jesus went on to tell the, ser- the story. Remember about the servant and the king? And the servant owed a tremendous debt. And there was no way the servant could ever repay the debt. So the king decided to sell the servant and the servant's family off as a way to recoup some of his losses. And you'll remember the servant begged and pleaded the king to, 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 that he could pay it back. And what did the king do? Remember the story? He had compassion, didn't he? And he relented and he forgave the servant everything well with a feeling of relief like that you would think that the servant would want to go off and have a grateful heart but what did he do remember the story that Jesus tells he went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a small debt and he grabbed him and began to choke him demanding pay back what you owe me and likewise this fellow servant begged him to be patient But he refused, and he had his fellow servant thrown into prison. Now, when the other servants saw this, you remember what they did? Oh, they ran to the king, and they tattled on him. And the king brought that wicked servant back in, called him on the carpet, and said, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, the king handed him over to the jailers to be tortured. Jesus ends the parable with a lesson this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart the lesson is obvious if God grants us mercy for all we owe God we ought to forgive others the trifle they owe us but it ain't easy is it whether it's showing forgiveness or giving mercy I'm reminded of another biblical story where a very unlikely person shows mercy and shows the face of God. You remember the story of Esau and Jacob? Oh, it's one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. Wow. They were born to Isaac and Rebekah. They were fraternal twins. And when they were born, there was a hint of what was to come. Do you remember Jacob came out first and Esau was holding on to his heel? It was a sign of what would end up happening to Esau. And the boys grew up. They were very difficult, different. The King James Version describes Esau as a man of the open country. He loved to hunt. He was known as a hairy man. He was a rugged man, a rugged individual. And quite frankly, he was known as, we would call him somewhat of a player. He loved to chase the women of other cultures. Jacob, on the other hand, was different. The King James Version describes him as a quiet man who dwelt among the tents. Jacob loved to cook with his mama. (laughs) And he dreamed of growing up and marrying a a nice little Jewish uh, lady and and, and living in the community there. But you'll remember what happened. When they were young men, Esau had been out hunting, and he was so famished when he got back home, he thought he was about to die. Remember that story? And he came up on Jacob. And what was Jacob doing? Remember? He was cooking a, a, a pot of stew. Now, you also need to know that Jacob, you know what Jacob means? It means trickster. And you remember what happened? Esau thought he was famished, and so Jacob uh, tricked Esau into selling his birthright for a, a bowl of stew. And then later on, Jacob tricks him again. You remember this story from Bible school days. Uh, when Isaac was an old man, he told Esau to go out and hunt some of his favorite game, prepare it for him the way he liked. And after eating it, he would give Esau the blessing of the firstborn. And remember who overheard the story? Rebekah overheard the story, and so she concocted a scheme and got Jacob involved with it, and she went ahead, and while Esau was gone, she made Isaac some of his favorite food. And remember, Isaac was blind and couldn't see. And she also put goat skin. Remember that? Put goat skin on uh, uh, Jacob's hands and on his neck so that when he went into the tent, Isaac would think it was him. The trick worked. Isaac was fooled. He gave the blessing to Jacob. And Jacob got out of there just before Esau got back with the game. And one of the saddest passages I know in the whole Bible is where Esau pleads with his father Bless me too, my father. Haven't you saved a blessing for me? But Isaac sadly told him there was nothing left to give him. And from that day forward, Esau swore that he would kill that brother of his. But he was going to wait until his father died out of respect for him, but he was going to kill him. Well, the parents heard about this, and Isaac and Rebekah told Jacob, best thing you can do is get out of here. You need to go far away, and you need to go live with Uncle Laban for a while. You remember the story? He went to live with Uncle Laban, and God blessed Jacob for all the hard work that he did. And he met and fell in love with his cousin Rachel. Remember that? And you'll remember the old trickster got tricked himself. He worked seven years for this woman (laughs) and then got duped himself and ended up marrying Leah, and then he had to work another seven years to keep Rachel. But while he was there with Uncle Laban, God blessed Jacob, and he amassed a small fortune in livestock. And with the two mistresses he had and with Leah and Rachel, he had 11 children and one daughter. And then God told Jacob, it's time for you to go back home. Well, it had been almost 20 years since he had left, and maybe Esau's temper had cooled, maybe so, maybe not. And Jacob sent a message to Esau that he was coming back home. And do you remember Esau sent a message back? Do you remember that message? Hey, brother, I'm coming to meet you, and I've got 400 men with me. Had an entire regiment. So on his journey back home, Jacob sent herds of livestock ahead of his family's caravan to give to Esau in hopes of appeasing Esau. But still, he didn't hear anything back. And on the last night of their journey back home, before he went to meet Esau, the family camped near the Jordan River. Jacob couldn't sleep that night. He feared the worst that Esau would kill his entire family. Not able to sleep, he forded a nearby stream, and he literally wrestled with God, or an angel of God, all night long. And holding on as tight as he could, he would not let go of God until God gave him his blessing. And come daybreak, with Jacob's hip disconnected, and even the angel of God exhausted, God gave Jacob his blessing, a new identity, and told him, you will no longer be called Jacob, a trickster but you will be called Israel because you have struggled with God and prevailed. Jacob decided to call that place. I want you to remember this. You know what he called that place where he wrestled with God? He called it Peniel. That's a Hebrew word that means face of God. And so with a slight limp but a new identity, Jacob gathered his family and took off to meet Esau. But even with a new identity, Jacob... Fell into the same old ways. He played favorites. Just in case Esau decided to kill everybody, guess what? He put his mistresses and the children he had with them up front so that if Esau unleashed his, his wrath, they would die first. And he put Leah just a little bit behind in a safer place with the children he had with her. And then his favorite wife, Rachel, and his favorite son, Joseph, he put in the rear in hopes that they could make it. But we got to give Jacob credit for this. He at least had the courage to walk in front of them all. And when he finally met Esau, Esau did not attack with his regiment. He did not run with him with a sword. He did not even accept the gifts that Jacob had given him. But to Jacob's surprise, Esau ran to his brother and embraced him. And the two brothers wept. And after they had cried a little and pulled back from their embrace, Jacob told Esau what has become one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. Now that you have received me favorably, in other words, now that you have given me mercy, seeing your face is like seeing. Remember, Peniel? Seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. In other words, now that you have shown me mercy, I can see the face of God. In other parts of the Bible, Esau is generally not remembered for his graciousness. But I can't help but wonder, where in the world did he find such mercy were it not from God? When John the Apostle was an old man, he actually told us that no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. And he went on to say that God is love. And what does perfect love do? It drives away fear. No wonder the priestly blessing is, may the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you. And may the Lord turn His face towards you and give you peace. None of us here, none of us, as John the Apostle has said, has literally ever seen the face of God. Yet, There are times when we have felt as if we have seen the face of God, and if you think about those times, I bet if your life is like me, every one of those times, it is when we felt God's mercy. No wonder Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I'll end with some practical application. Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, He was a leader in the Christian church in Europe in the 11th and 12th centuries. He was the J. Wolf of his day. He was the T.D. Jakes of his day in in Europe. And Bernard of Clairvaux uh, said this. He said that there are four stages of love or spiritual growth, if you will. And the first stage is this that's when we love self for self's sake. That's what our life was like before we came to know Jesus. It was all about the Carl Fisher Show or your show, but then we come to an encounter with Christ. But I will admit to you, even as a Christian person, there are still days it's still about the Carl Fisher Show, and I just love myself for myself's sake. Do you have days like that? And then there's another stage. Then we grow in our faith, and then eventually we get to the point where we love God for ourselves' sake. It's better than the other place, but it's still, you know, I love Jesus because I get my get-out-of-hell-free card. I get to go to heaven. Or if I pray hard enough, God will cure me of this or that. Or if I pray hard enough, God will get me out of prison or do this or give me this job. But it's a, still, it's sort of a transactional relationship with the Lord. But then, there are days and there are moments when we, as Bernard de Clairvaux said, we love God for God's sake. I heard Mark talk about that this day, today in Sunday school. But these are the moments when you, you see a bird, you see a sunset, you see a newborn baby. I, I kiss my wife, and it's like, wow, I, I just love God for God's sake. Do you ever have those moments? And then Bernard Clairvaux said there's a fourth stage. And he said this one we rarely experience on this side of the Jordan. But he said heaven will be like this all the time. And that's when we love ourselves for God's sake. this is when we look in the mirror and we see ourselves as God sees us and we have no fear of death no fear of loss, no fear of anything we are only motivated by God's love and that's when we see others the way God sees them that's when we know how and when to give mercy it's when we know we cannot let dangerous people out of prison because this impacts mercy For other people as well but it also enables us to know when it's time to open the prison bars and find a more honorable way to help people pay back their debts to society but when we see God this way this is also a time when we are able to see our family our friends and yes even our enemies the way God sees them and determine when to gently confront those or when to simply let them off the hook. Now, by the way, you can apply, apply Bernard of Clairvaux's four stages of love to all of your relationships. For, for instance, right now, you know, am I doing this just because I'm getting something out of it, or is it because I genuinely love God, for God's sake? And I see you. I see God in you. The relationship with your wife, you know, do you? Are you loving her just because you're getting something out of her, or or your husband just because you're getting something out of him, or do you do it because you see Jesus in them? This is that stage of life or that part of love when we're actually able to to show God's mercy. So here's your homework assignment I want you to go home and look in the mirror. And unless you're a sight challenge, look in the mirror. Now, I know that some of us are growing older, and that might be a little painful, but look in the mirror and ask God to help you see yourself as God sees you. And when you do that, you will see others the way God sees them too. Let me pray with you. Dear God, we thank you for your word. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy lord as we look into our minds and hearts right now show us the people that we know we need to give mercy to with our physical eyes closed and our spiritual eyes open let us see your face the faces of our family friends and even our enemies as you see them and allow us to see ourselves as you do within your divine mercy lord have mercy christ have mercy Amen. And now may the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you, and may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Thank you.